Thanks be to God. That is God's holy, inerrant word for us today. So let us go to him in prayer, asking for his help as we study it this morning. Prepare our hearts, O God. Help us to receive. Break the hard and stony ground. Help our unbelief. Plant your word deep down in us. Cause it to bear fruit. Open up our ears to hear. Lead us in your truth. Show us Christ. O God, reveal your glory through the preaching of your word until every heart confesses that you, you are Lord. Amen. Well, if you've done any research or study within church history, one of the most intriguing elements you'll come to find is the intentionality and, and the great care placed on planning and building the church's gathering place. Specifically, the grand and glorious cathedrals built during the Middle Ages, ministering to a culture that had no direct access to scriptures in their own languages. The medieval church faced the challenge of teaching biblical truth to a Bible-less people. And so, one of the creative ways they taught the key doctrines of the faith was by building object lessons into their church facilities. And so, you had firm foundations and towering, transcendent towers, tile mosaics and stained-glass windows, all telling the story of redemption in full color. Even the way the sunlight stream through those windows. Everything was designed to declare and delight in the great biblical doctrines of God and the gospel. The cathedrals were built to teach theology to the people in the pews, and as such, it became known as the poor man's Bible. As a matter of fact, one of the most distinct features of the cathedrals was their cruciform or cross-shaped floor plan, which was meant to deliberately communicate that the central doctrine of the church was the gospel, the message of the cross. The prayer of the church in those days was that through the preaching of the gospel inside that church building, and then through the presentation of the gospel in its arts and its architecture, the surrounding culture would hear and they would see the cross. As we come to our passage this morning here in Mark 8, what we hear from the lips of Jesus is that his followers should have that same prayer. Oh, we won't hear him instruct us to build lavish cruciform cathedrals, but what we hear him teach his disciples is that we should build radically cruciform lives, lives shaped by the cross for the glory of God and the joy of all people. Now, unfortunately, the problem within the church today is that just like we'll see in the words of Peter here in our passage this morning, we are far too more preoccupied with the things of man 
and not the things of God. In fact, if you've been around people lately, or you've maybe looked in the mirror lately, you've probably noticed that we as humans tend to look out for numero uno, don't we? Even as it comes to our faith, even as it comes to our gathering as a church and reading God's Word, we have this propensity in our hearts to make ourselves the center of attention. It's a problem as old as the fall of mankind in Genesis 3. To make ourselves the center. We're tempted to believe that lie that we can be like God. And so we read our own thoughts over top of God's word, fabricating a Jesus who fits our agenda. And believing his call to follow him is more about our own comfort and prosperity in life. The harsh reality about the church today is that we are far more lounge chair formed than we are cruciform. Now, don't think I'm just talking about them out there, I'm talking about us in here, you and I. If we are brutally honest with ourselves, we can be more about a Jesus who gives us a comfortable life than we are about a Jesus who calls us to deny ourselves and take up a cross. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor and theologian, who's known for his opposition to the nationalist, uh, National Socialism and who was eventually hanged by the Nazis in 1945, so profoundly wrote these words about this passage that we're studying this morning. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die doesn't sound all that comfortable. doesn't sound like a lounge chair form disciple. It sounds like a cruciform life. You see, discipleship is not a part-time volunteer work that takes place on a Sunday as an extracurricular activity to just fill up our weekends. No, being a disciple, following Jesus, means giving up our very lives. For you see, church, here in this passage, we learn this simple truth this morning, that those who truly follow Jesus are shaped by his mission. Those who truly follow Jesus are shaped by his mission, but just don't take my word for it. Hear God in his word here in Mark 8. As Matt mentioned last week, what we hold in front of us here in Mark 8 is the hinge point in the entire gospel of Mark. What we've been seeing for the last eight chapters is the unfolding account of Jesus as the true and rightful king over all things. In fact, Jesus himself declared this truth referring to himself as the Son of Man in chapter 2, verses 10 and 28. It's a title Mark will use some 13 times throughout this entire gospel of count and twice in our passage this morning. It's a title taken from Daniel 7, where Daniel describes his vision of the coming Messiah and states in verses 13 and 14, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him 
and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so as Jesus begins to reveal this kingdom, his rule his authority over all creation, in the healing of the man with the unclean spirit and the sick, those who are oppressed by demons and the lepers in chapter 1, the paralytic in chapter 2, the man with a withered hand in chapter 3, the calming of the storm over the sea in chapter 4, the healing of the demon-possessed man, the woman with an issue of blood, and the raising of Jairus' daughter from from death to life in chapter 5. His rule and authority in the feeding of the 5,000, his ability to walk on water, healing of the sick, all in chapter 6, the healing of the daughter who had been tormented by unclean spirits and the deaf man in chapter 7, and then even as we studied last week here in chapter 8, the feeding of the 4,000 and the healing of the blind man. What has been abundantly clear in this gospel account so far is that Jesus rules over all things. He is, in fact, the one who was presented before the Ancient of Days and to whom was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that will not pass away. You see, Mark paints a radiant portrait here, but his canvas is only half complete. And all of this brings us here to the middle of chapter 8, where we find Jesus traveling with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And while they are on their way, Jesus asks his disciples a question that has been resonating in the background of this entire gospel account by Mark. And he asks this question, who do people say that I am? Now Jesus is not asking this question because he's worried about his reputation at this point. Nor is this an instance of adolescent curiosity, as if he's wondering, I mean, what do they really think about me? As we see in verse 29, Jesus' inquiry is aimed more pointedly at his disciples, for his desire is to both assure and teach them who he truly is. And so it is here that we come to our first point this morning, if you're taking notes. The person of Jesus. The disciples are Jesus' target here, even though they don't know that quite yet. And so they answer Jesus' question. Well, some say you are John the Baptist, and others say Elijah. Others, one of the prophets. If you recall, we heard these exact answers back in chapter 6, as Mark recorded what King Herod had heard of this person named Jesus. There we read these words in verses 14 and through 16, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known, and some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. Others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Mark's point in recording this in both chapter 6, and then now here with the disciples' answer in chapter 8, is evidently to highlight how in all the amazement and wonder of the miraculous powers of Christ, the healings, the casting out of demons, how the people have completely misunderstood who 
Jesus was. Being the father of twin daughters, I'm quite familiar with the confusion that comes from those outside of our family as to which one is which. Now, now which one is Karis and, and which one is Chloe? I mean, they look and, I, and act, I might add, totally different to me, but I can understand how people can confuse them. But that's not what's happening here. This twin confusion, if you might call it, is not what's happening here in Mark 8. Jesus and John the Baptist are cousins, but it's not as if they looked so much alike that they couldn't tell the difference. You see, the confusion actually resides in the dismissal of Jesus' authority and power over all things, even to forgive sins, as we saw back in chapter 2. Jesus, though, is not primarily concerned with the people's misunderstanding in this specific moment. He wants to know if those who are closest to him truly know who he is. And so he asked his followers, his disciples, but who do you say that I am? The Gospel of Mark was a movie. This is when the music slows down. The background begins to get further blurred and the camera lens focuses directly on the disciples. Oh, this is the, the question of all questions. Who do you say that I am? Who's going to answer it? And will it be John, the, the beloved? Perhaps Matthew or Andrew will answer. Oh, it's possible that even the disciples turned to look at Judas Iscariot in that moment. Oh, the text doesn't actually tell us who's looking at who in this very moment, or if that was even happening, all Mark tells us is that Peter answers. Ah, yes, Peter. Of course it would be Peter. Out of all the disciples, he's always the one sticking his neck out on the line and then usually sticking his foot in his mouth. But this time, Peter's answer is, is clear. It's accurate. As Peter responds, you are the Christ. Again, if this was a movie... The music would now abruptly fade as those four words resound. You are the Christ. This confession is at the very center of Mark's gospel. This is who Jesus is, the Christ. Now, if you're new to studying the Bible, this declaration by Peter here of Jesus as the Christ may not seem all that significant. For often we can think of that word Christ is just Jesus' last name. And just as my name is Dan Loggins, so too have many thought this of Jesus Christ. The name Christ, however, is not Jesus' last name, but it's another title for who Jesus was. He is the Messiah, the Anointed One. You see, in this moment, Peter confesses Jesus to be the Messiah and he's declaring that Jesus is the long-awaited promise. The fulfillment of the promise made back in Genesis 3.15. He's the offspring of Eve who would one day crush the head of the, of the serpent. Peter's declaring here that Jesus is this promised anointed one who would reign on the throne of the king of David forever and ever. This Messiah was the one to whom all the people of Israel looked forward to. 
for he would be the one, the one to finally rescue them from the oppression they had so long experienced as a people. And even in this moment, we're experiencing through the Roman Empire. In fact, the setting of this scene around the villages of Caesarea Philippi is important to note that there was a temple built to Augustus Caesar in that area. And so even as Peter makes this declaration, you are the Messiah, that could have been ringing in their ears. He is the king, the promised one. Will he now rule? This is the high point of Mark. For this is the point at which his disciples have been won over to see Jesus as the coming king they have so long anticipated. But notice what comes next in verse 30. As those four words resound, you are the Christ. All of a sudden, it's as if the background music modulates to a minor key or off key altogether, jarring us as Jesus strictly charges his disciples to tell no one about him. This makes no sense. Why would would Jesus do this? In fact, if you've been with us throughout this study so far, we've heard similar statements previously as Jesus has told those he's healed to tell no one. But why? I mean, why keep quiet at this point when Peter finally confesses Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ? I mean, why, why this apparent secrecy from Jesus? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because the answer is revealed in the following verses as we come to our second point this morning. Not only do we see the person of Jesus, but we see the mission of Jesus. If you haven't already picked up this throughout our study, Mark likes sudden movements. His pace throughout the majority of his account is swift and succinct. This transition from the last scene in verses 27 through 30 to this next scene starting in verse 31 is a prime example of this. While Peter's confession is still resonating, Jesus not only tells his disciples to tell no one, but then he quickly proceeds to teach them about what the days ahead will bring. In one word, the journey that lay ahead of Jesus is one of suffering. Suffering? Having just reached the pinnacle of the gospel account of Mark, the confession of Jesus as the promised king, the Messiah, Mark's choice is to go here next. I mean, that's that's kind of surprising, isn't it? It's surprising as now it seems like this ominous shadow sets upon Jesus and his disciples. Suffer? The Son of Man, the the one who has been given all dominion, power, and authority must suffer? I mean, how can this be? How does the one who just healed the blind man, fed 4,000 people with only seven loaves of bread, now face rejection and death? Oh, but this was Jesus' mission. Even so, Jesus' teaching about his impending suffering did not settle well with his disciples. For as Mark records in verse 32, Peter once again steps to the head of the class and sticks his neck out on the line. And boy, does he. I love how Mark records this account here. 
especially with the knowledge that he's receiving this account perhaps from the lips of Peter. I mean, obviously Peter's rough edges are eventually humbled for what happens here is not something I'd want recorded about me. Now this is the depiction of the palm to the face emoji we have on our phones. Peter actually rebukes Jesus. I mean, what are you doing, Peter? You've just said he's the Messiah, the king of all ages, and now you're scolding him? I mean, that's what this word rebuke here means. Peter scolds Jesus. Bad call, Peter. I mean, there are three people in life that you just don't rebuke. You don't scold. A judge in his courtroom, your mother-in-law, and Jesus, especially Jesus. But you see, here's the issue at hand. Peter, along with the other disciples, while recognizing correctly who Jesus was as the Messiah, the King, they failed to recognize how he was going to be exalted as the King. For it is through suffering that Jesus would receive glory. And so, just as the blind man's sight was initially blurred, so too is the spiritual sight of Jesus' disciples. It's unclear. It's half done. Their eyes only saw Jesus as the conquering king, but not as the suffering servant. And Jesus knew this, which is why he instructs them to tell no one. To this point, New Testament scholar Craig Bloomberg explains that Jesus was very cautious about accepting the title or allowing premature enthusiasm to overwhelm his mission because popular Christological expectation did not leave room for a suffering Messiah. You see, in this moment, as Jesus begins to reveal his mission here on earth to suffer, he's not at all the Messiah the disciples expected him to be. They wanted political and social reform, even freedom from, and from this promised king. But he is the Messiah that will suffer. He's not the one they expected, but he is the one they desperately needed. Oh, and he's the one we desperately need as well. For friends, here in these verses, we have the very heart of the gospel. The good news that, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, the conquering king, the one who is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And yet, while crushing the head of the serpent, he himself would be bruised in our place. Isaiah prophesies with these words in the 53rd chapter, he would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. You see, friends, this 
was Jesus' mission to make a way for you and I to be in a relationship with God who created us for his glory. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in turn. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. Oh, friend, if you're here this morning, and have not heard this glorious good news of the gospel. This morning I urge you, I beg you to turn in faith to this Jesus, the coming King, the Messiah, the suffering servant in your place. Turn in repentance away from your pursuit of self-righteousness or self-satisfaction and come to faith in Jesus. This is a suffering servant. The suffering servant that the people of Israel and Jesus' disciples completely missed. This Jesus didn't fit their expectations. For kings are supposed to wield power, not fall victim to it. But this was setting their mind on the things of man, not on the things of God. Which is why Jesus rebukes Peter so harshly in return. Get behind me, Satan. That's not what you want to hear from the lips of Jesus. This is no small rebuke, and yet it's absolutely fitting. For what we see here is that at the root, what Peter wanted was a Jesus that fit his own agenda. He didn't want a crushed and crucified Savior. He wanted a miracle-working Messiah. This mission then makes him uncomfortable. It makes his disciples uncomfortable for over the next several chapters we'll hear Jesus repeat his mission again and again and his disciples seem to not get it again and again. They're uncomfortable with this. You know the sad reality is there are far too many people who file in the pews each Sunday morning knowing just enough about Jesus to make him somewhat attractive. And yet, in reality, what they have is a totally inadequate understanding of who Jesus truly is and what his mission is. Oh, they gather each week to worship, but it's a worshiping of a man-made Jesus who coddles their hopes to live the American dream. But that Jesus isn't the Jesus of this book. Jesus is not about our yachts. He's not about our 401ks. He's not about how many sports events our kids can be in. He's not about our comfort. So how about you, friend? Does this Jesus make you uncomfortable? He should. For the Jesus we find here was sent to suffer. And he calls us to suffer as well. Which leads us to our final point this morning. 
the call of Jesus. If, in fact, Peter and the rest of his disciples were uncomfortable with what Jesus had just said, their uneasiness will increase all the more as Jesus now turns to the crowd and begins to lay out what it truly means to follow him. Jesus says to them, as we already read, but let me read it again, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Oh, truly, I say to you, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Always one to tell it like it is. Jesus begins to weed out the crowd that accompanies him. He does so because he's not at all content to just have those who are there for the show. No, he wants true disciples, true followers. You see, Jesus has no desire to hide from those who follow him what it will require of them. And so he makes it clear to everyone just how much it will cost. Accompanying Jesus is not enough. It's never been enough to to merely know his teaching, spend time with him, and even spend time with others who do the same. No, Jesus does not call us to simply tag along with him, lounging on the sidelines. No, Jesus calls us to give our all, to deny ourselves, to take up the cross, to lose our lives. Now, while this call is fairly straightforward, certainly is a lot to take in, isn't it? For us today, but also for his disciples. But notice here the similarities between Christ's mission and his call to discipleship. Look at the three phrases once again, deny himself, take up his cross, and save it. These are an echo of Christ's mission. Rejected, killed, and rise again. So as Christ went to the cross, was rejected, denying himself. Oh, Father, would there be another way, but not my will, yours, was killed, taking up his cross. But then that third day, rising again, his life saved. You see, those who truly follow Jesus are shaped by Christ's mission. This is a call to a cruciform life, a cross-shaped life. The call to follow Jesus is a call to suffer. Friend, are you willing to bear the cross and follow after Jesus? In the words of J.C. Ryle, to be a mere nominal Christian and 
go to church is cheap and easy work. He said it. It's cheap and easy. But to hear Christ's voice, follow Christ, believe Christ, and confess Christ requires much self-denial. It will cost us our sins. It will cost us our self-righteousness. And it will cost us our ease. Is that too much for you? Disciples are cross-bearers. Those whose lives are cruciform, shaped by Christ's mission, but then also empowered by his spirit to follow him no matter the cost. For even in this passage, we have this promise in verse 1 of chapter 9. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste the death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Pointing forward to the resurrection of Christ, his ascension into heaven, and then the coming spirit as we see in Acts chapter 2. This promise that as we go through this cruciform life, that the spirit empowers us for this mission. Disciples are called to suffer, but we do so with the spirit and with the hope of glory. So friend, Are you willing to deny yourself, take up a cross, and follow Christ? Now here's your Monday morning moment. Tomorrow morning as you wake up, ask yourself this, how am I called to follow Christ today, this week? And what will it cost me to follow him today? Will it cost me a promotion Is he worth that? Will it cost me to give up what I've known for the last several years to move across country to help plant a church among a people who do not know the risen Savior? How this week am I called to follow Christ? How am I called to give myself up For him. Oh, it seems as if this call to follow Christ is so uncomfortable in our culture today. Even as I read these words, I'm uncomfortable. Are you really calling me to deny myself, God? Is that what it means to follow you? Oh, I just want just a little bit of you. Let me sit back in my lounge chair and just take a little, please. That's enough for me. I feel that in my heart. And I was going to close this morning with a story of Jim Elliott who, following Christ, took, it cost him his life. But as I was wrestling through this this morning, And over this week, I don't think there are many in this room this morning, if you look around, that will be called to go across this globe and will have your life in front of you and you'll have to decide whether or not to pull a trigger or to take the spear. But for some of you, what will happen is this week, 
following Christ will cost you something. Maybe a little bit of your reputation at work. Maybe a little extra whining and complaining from your kids. It'll cost something. And so, the other day I found, had a friend share this poem with me. I think it's more fitting to our context today. It's entitled, Three Dollars Worth of God. And I think it's a reality for our culture. These words, even within the American church, they echo more loudly. I would like to buy three dollars worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. Oh, I don't want enough of God to make me love a black man or pick beets with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Those who truly follow Jesus are shaped by his mission. Are you willing to live a cruciform life? Father, this morning, we have been confronted by your word. In the words of our Savior to his disciples so many years ago, to the crowds that followed him because of the amazing miracles and tricks he could do, we too have seen ourselves confronted by the person of Jesus, his mission, and the call to take up the cross, to deny ourselves, and to follow you. So, Father, I ask that it was not my words that were heard this morning, but it was yours, that you have shown us Christ, that you have revealed your glory and that every heart would confess you as Lord, no matter the cost. So, Father, help us as your people today in this location. Help us to be all in, to deny ourselves, and truly take on the shape, the form of our master, our king, who suffered in our place.